Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast for medical students and all learners. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, and Joyce Sow. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome to another Run the List episode in our HEME-ONC series. Today, we'll be talking about pancytopenia with our expert discussant, Dr. Eric Parnes. He's a hematologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as Dana-Farber, and he's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's also the assistant program director for the HEME-ONC fellowship program at the Dana-Farber, as well as Mass General Brigham. Today's case presenter, as well as our scriptwriter, is Sarah Honorado, who's a fourth-year medical student at Harvard Medical School who's interested in internal medicine as well as clinical reasoning. Thanks for joining us, and let's run the list. So, Sarah, can you introduce the case to us? Absolutely. So today we're going to talk about a case of a 62-year-old male. He has a history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia, and he's presenting to the emergency department with lightheadedness and near syncope while mowing the lawn today. On presentation to the emergency department, he has an EKG that's normal. His initial labs, he was noted to have a normal BMP and a CBC that was remarkable for a white blood cell count of 2.4 with 88% lymphs. He had a hemoglobin of 6.8 and a hematocrit of 21 and a platelet count of 34,000. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. So for our case, based on these initial labs, it already looks like multiple cell lines are down. So here at Run the List, we always emphasize our framework. So Dr. Parnes, what's your approach to thinking about pancytopenia? Well, the framework for pancytopenia is very similar to any cytopenia, and that is thinking about whether or not there's a problem with the production of the cells whether there is a loss of the cells or destruction of the cells, or could they be sequestered in an organ, specifically the spleen? I think each of those brings up many different possible diagnoses, but it provides a nice structure how to approach each case. So for instance, with bone marrow production problems, we can think about diseases that infiltrate bone marrow, such as malignancies, whether that's hematologic malignancy or solid tumor malignancy, metastasizing from elsewhere, or myelofibrosis, so the bone marrow being replaced by fibrotic tissue. The bone marrow can be replaced really by anything, whether it's granulomas from sarcoidosis or tuberculosis or even infections. And then certain medications can suppress bone marrow function, and, and infections frequently do that. So the infections that commonly come up would include HIV, hepatitis, parvovirus, and then very importantly, you need specific nutrients to make blood. So if you're missing the ingredients, it's pretty hard to make the cells. And the key nutrients that we always look for include vitamin B12 and folic acid, Iron uh, is critical for red blood cell production, not for white cells and platelets, but it's important to look at that as well when, when you have red cells low in pancytopenia. And then more recently in vogue is checking copper. So copper deficiency will cause cytopenias, and when it's severe, it will cause pancytopenia to the point where it starts to mimic myelodysplastic syndrome. 
for splenic sequestration, you really need an enlarged spleen for that to to happen. So that's where our physical exam comes in handy. And then if we're unable to palpate a spleen, maybe because of body habitus, we can check the spleen size with imaging, whether that's ultrasound or CT scan. And when we think about destructive causes, when the cytopenia is specifically red cells, the first place to think about is bleeding, uh, especially the GI tract. But with pancytopenia, we don't worry about the GI blood loss causing neutropenia or thrombocytopenia. So the destructive process really is more an internal one. So things like thrombotic microangiopathies like DIC or TTP, and then immune-mediated destruction. Thanks for sharing that framework. It sounds like there's three buckets, one which is bone marrow infiltration, one that's bone marrow suppression or failure, and a third one that's destruction or sequestration in the spleen. Before we talk about a workup, are there any initial considerations you want to think about before trying to figure out the etiologies for pancytopenia? Yeah, you know, with any patient, the first thing you really want to consider are the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. People with pancytopenia, when it's severe, that can be a life-threatening problem uh, for a, a few reasons. Each cell line is important for their specific function. So if the white cells are really low, patients sometimes can prevent with life-threatening infections or septic shock. When the red blood cells are low, this anemia can be profound at times, and urgent red blood cell transfusion sometimes is necessary for the symptomatic patient. And then with severe thrombocytopenia, bleeding can also be life-threatening. Fortunately, we have the ability to transfuse red cells and platelets. We don't really have the ability to transfuse white blood cells, so giving broad-spectrum antibiotic coverage when somebody has an infection with neutropenia is tantamount. Great. So once we've made sure that the patient is stable, how would you then proceed with an initial history and what would you particularly look for on a physical exam? When seeing a patient with cytopenias, the first thing I want to understand is the time course. So I will typically look in their medical record at past labs and try to chart whether using the medical records charting program or a flow sheet or just looking at numbers in my head to make that assessment. Is this something new? Has this been going on for a long time? Is it gradual, subacute? Because that's really going to change how I approach the patient and which diagnoses are more likely. For instance, when somebody has a sudden change in their blood counts. I immediately start wondering about bone marrow diseases like acute leukemia or destructive processes, perhaps due to infection. When it's a slower process, I think about nutritional deficiencies and I think about bone marrow diseases like myelodysplastic syndrome which can be a very slow progression. On physical exam, we would look for signs of disease severity, such as with thrombocytopenia, we're looking for petechiae. 
on the legs predominantly, but also bruising or ecchymoses anywhere. Mouth blood blisters are particularly important, which would suggest not just severe thrombocytopenia, but platelet dysfunction. And then features of anemia would include pallor and decreased capillary refill. Great. That's very helpful. Sarah, would you mind giving us a little bit more information about our patient's history as well as their exam findings? Absolutely. So our patient on review of systems, he's denying any fevers, no chills, no other localizing symptoms. He does note some fatigue and some easy bleeding when brushing his teeth, some frequent nosebleeds, and also has a few new bruises that he thinks he got while doing some work out in the yard. He takes lisinopril and atorvastatin, as well as some NSAIDs for chronic low back pain. He has occasional alcohol use, about five to six drinks a week, and no other substance use, no recent travel, and no sick contacts. And his labs were normal six months prior to this current presentation. On exam today, his vitals, he's afebrile, he has a heart rate in the 90s, a blood pressure of 104 over 68, a normal respiratory rate, and satting well on room air. He has pale conjunctiva. He has a two out of six systolic murmur best heard at the left upper sternal border. There is no hepatosplenomegaly. He has some scattered bruises on his extremities in various stages of healing, and his exam is otherwise unremarkable. Great. Thank you, Sarah. So Dr. Parnes, can you tell us how you are synthesizing all of this information together and maybe what the next steps for workup would be? Sure. So, you know, there wasn't anything that really drew me in on the physical exam. There's evidence of anemia with pallor and a murmur and some bruising suggesting platelet issue but nothing that's pointing me towards an underlying diagnosis. One thing that was helpful is that the spleen was not palpable, so that makes me a little less suspicious about liver disease. Now the next phase is additional testing to try to uncover a cause. And so I'm going to want to test nutrient levels. I'm going to be interested in really repeating the CBC and and thinking about what the size of the red blood cells are, is there a production problem, and reticulocyte count will help uh, understand that production issue. And very importantly, looking at the blood under a microscope. I think that is really an essential part that often gets overlooked. I want to see coagulation and fibrinogen. This is the DIC panel. So it's a clue for possible destruction of cells. And then broadly, HIV, hepatitis, thyroid, liver function tests, creatinine, you know, a broad workup. Great. Thank you. As a follow-up on the thyroid tests, what would a TSH show you? How is it connected to pancytopenia? There are rare circumstances where hypo or hyperthyroidism can cause cytopenias. Honestly, most of the time, that is not the case, but it's an easy test and it's something you just don't want to miss. Great. Thank you. It sounds like there are many symptoms that someone can present with. Thyroid panels are almost always helpful, especially if it's not in the immediately acute setting. And, you know, for that reason, you can almost always find a recent TSH in a patient's chart. Yeah, exactly. Great. So Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about this patient again and maybe go through the labs that were then checked for this patient? Sure. So the patient had a repeat CBC that was unchanged, showing a persistent pancytopenia. 
Reticulocytes were 0.2% and his MCV was 112. His smear was notable for hyposegmented neutrophils, macrocytic RBCs, and no evidence of any schistocytes. His PT, PTT, fibrinogen were checked and were all within normal limits. And the rest of his studies, which included a BMP, LFTs, B12, folate, TSH, HIV, and hepatitis B and C testing were all unremarkable. Okay. So Dr. Parnes, how are you thinking about these results and what would your next step be? Well, this is great. I love normal results because it it allows us to rule out a lot of things. You know, the, the high MCV gives me a certain list of possibilities. So high MCVs we often see with liver disease, but that's not this person. We often can see with thyroid problems, that's not this person. With nutrient deficiencies, but that's not this person. And then the bone marrow problem. So whether that's myelodysplastic syndrome, leukemia, aplastic anemia, and hyposegmented neutrophils is also a good clue. Normal neutrophils should have three to five lobes. And when it's hypersegmented, we think about megaloblastic anemia with vitamin B12 or folate deficiency. With hyposegmented neutrophils, I start thinking about myelodysplastic syndrome. So, you know, consumptive processes are becoming less likely with our normal coags, fibrinogen, no destructive cells like schistocytes on a blood smear. And and then the next thing I'm going to start wondering about is whether or not we should be looking at the bone marrow itself. Yeah. So it seems like in this case, tissue might be the issue. So a bone marrow biopsy might be necessary to clinch some sort of diagnosis for this patient. Sarah, can you provide the results of our bone marrow biopsy? Yeah, absolutely. So the patient did have a bone marrow biopsy performed that revealed hypercellularity with multilineage dysplasia and 15% blasts. He was diagnosed with myelodysplastic syndrome based on these results. He received supportive care with red blood cell transfusions and was initiated on chemotherapy given his risk profile. Great. Thanks, Sarah, for wrapping up this case. And thank you, Dr. Parnes, for walking us through how you would approach pancytopenia, both generally as well as for this particular patient. Before we wrap up, we like to share some pearls. So Dr. Parnes, do you have any pearls you'd like to leave listeners with before we go? Yeah, I think there are some key takeaway points here that are worth remembering really throughout your medical career. And it's not always about cytopenias or pancytopenia, but number one, addressing the severity of illness first. So, you know, if somebody's bleeding, making sure that they have adequate transfusions, that their airway's protected, and that you're focused on how to stop the blood loss. Pearl number two is often in hematology, we're focused on what what the trends are. So is this acute, subacute, or chronic? And getting some old labs, even years ago or last year or six months ago, will be very helpful to understand why this is happening. And then pearl number three is how useful the blood smear can be. And it's, it's the easiest biopsy you can get. It just takes a drop of blood and then it gives you so much information. 
Yeah, that's that's excellent. I think I heard from hematologists that you can always walk down to the lab and take a look at a smear yourself to figure out some key components of what might be going on in terms of the etiology of any sort of emia or any sort of potential hematologic disorder. Sarah, how about you? So as a student on this case, what was one takeaway for you that you walked away with? I learned a lot from this case. I think one thing that I'll remember is to always look back at the patient's old lab values to get a sense for the time course, not only to tell if this is a new process that's going on, but what the time course might be in order to help hone the differential a little bit further. Thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you so much, Dr. Parnes, for joining us on a discussion on pancytopenia. This was super helpful for me as someone who, when when a CBC comes in and I notice all these cell lines down, that becomes pretty scary. But I think this is a good way to first approach this problem. For all our listeners, see you next time on another episode of our Heme Onc series for Run the List. If you like this episode and want to continue learning with us, please subscribe and consider leaving us a rating and review to let us know how we're doing. Also, be sure to check out our weekly handouts and tutorial summaries on our website and our Twitter for helpful graphics and space repetition of episode content. See you next time.